Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I am your host, Rachel Park. I am a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland in New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. I do hope you've been enjoying the episode so far. How's things with you? This is episode number 20, recorded this week, and today I talk with Andrea Marshall. Andrea is Professor of Acute and Complex Care Nursing at the Gold Coast University Hospital and Griffith University, Queensland, Australia. She is a leading critical care nursing researcher, and her programme of research focuses on improving outcomes for acute and critically ill patients, with a focus on nutrition interventions and family engagement. She is currently leading a randomised controlled trial evaluating the short-term outcomes of a family-centred nutrition intervention to improve nutrition intake of patients recovering from critical illness. Andrea is also the Editor-in-Chief of Australian Critical Care, the Journal of the Australian College of Critical Care Nurses. In this episode, we talk about the importance of working on a ward and becoming street smart, Keeping your patient neat and straight, and how ICU nurses are control freaks. Does that sound familiar? How we can engage and empower families to achieve goals of care, and how our goal is ultimately to make things better for our patients and families. So grab a cuppa, sit back, and have a listen to the interview with Andrea. Andrea for joining me today. This is very exciting. So I'm sat here in Auckland on a very sunny but chilly day out there (laughs) and you're tucked away in Queensland. So we've got a three hour time difference at the moment. So late morning for you. Um, I thought we'd just start by talking about how you got into nursing one or two years ago now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. First, thanks for thanks for having me. It's really nice to be part of this. It's an exciting um, initiative that you've got going, and I'm sure people will find it helpful. And it's funny you asked me that question because I was just talking about it to about two or three other people this week um, about how how it happened that I ended up doing nursing. And uh, when I thought back on it, I thought, yeah, yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> um, and really, what when I was about 15, I think, 15 or 16 years old, my general practitioner, I grew up in a very small town in Canada, and my GP, who actually delivered me, mm-hmm. said to me one day, would you come and work for me on a Saturday morning when I see patients because I need somebody to manage the reception? And I said, yeah, sure, I can, I can do that. So I went in and um, it was very much a steep learning curve because, you know, 16 years old, Mm. what do you know about working in a doctor's surgery? Nothing. (laughs) Um, Taking blood work results over the phone. And I'm going, what's an eosinophil? (laughs) 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 How do you spell that? Um, And he used to come out occasionally, like if a patient didn't turn up, he would come out and he would start teaching me different things. And he actually paid for me to go to our local community college and do a medical terminology course. So I went and did that, and and then he said, now go and do your first aid. So I was lifeguarding as well at the time. Um, So first aid was obviously part of being a lifeguard. So I had that, and I had my CPR, and then I had my medical terminology. And 
And he said to me one day, he says, you know, you should go and do nursing when you finish school, because if you, particularly if you go and you train at Vancouver General Hospital, you will get a job anywhere in the world that you want. But that, so I was sold. <laughs> I thought that sounded like a very good idea. Um, and at the time when I went into the hospital training program, it had changed slightly. So you were no longer, <clears throat> excuse me, no longer paid mm. to be a student. <clears throat> you, yeah. had to, you had to pay for pay. the program. <laughs> But you did get your accommodation free. Okay. So um, I've got a Scottish background, so I'm, I, I think <laughs> that I'm frugal. <laughs> and so that appealed to me that I could yeah. go and I could get qualification to work in a job that interested, interested me, um, where the pay was reasonably well. There was lots of opportunity to work in different places. And it wasn't actually going to cost me a lot of money to do it. So a deal really, doesn't it? it? It was, yeah, yeah. And so you did your training and enjoyed it? Yeah, so I trained at General Hospital in obviously in Vancouver in Western Canada. Um, and that was a it was a great experience. I mean, um, but for anybody who's done hospital training, you you'll remember what it was like. There was a lot of focus on doing and rolling your sleeves up. And uh, I can remember um, when I did my first university course, um, I did an assignment and I never referenced anything in it, <laughs> like nothing. No. And so it came back to me and they said, how come you didn't reference anything? And I go, what, what are you talking about? Because <laughs> I, I had no idea because we didn't mm. have to do that back then. So that was like, I think about it now and I think it's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> But it was just that that whole steep learning curve. So you learned some things and you did some things very well and you developed mm -hmm. a sense of confidence. But on reflecting back, I actually don't think we actually knew very much about what it was that we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and that concerns me a bit. But I see now um, the way that we're delivering education now is different. And people are much more knowledgeable, I think, than what I was when I went through. But but perhaps the um, the flip side of it is that we need to develop strategies to make sure that people get more time to do clinical practice. Mm. Well, you pointed out yourself, you know, about getting in there and rolling up your sleeves and actually doing. So yeah. I guess there's a pretty fine balance, isn't there, between that side of it and the book side of it and the knowledge side of it? Yeah, there is. And, and here in Australia, our nursing degrees are only three years long. Mm. So it, it, it doesn't create that extra opportunity yes there's a new graduate year that people can go into but um, you don't have to and not everybody can because there's limited places um, so that does help in some sense to have some supported learning in the clinical environment but uh, it would be really nice if if the government actually recognized the importance of nursing and and made it a four-year degree so that we could deliver the program in a much more supported fashion Mm, and then su exactly support that transition into the workplace as well. Yeah, because yeah exactly. It's a huge, huge step, isn't it? Suddenly, it is. Your training, getting out in the clinical area. Yeah, yeah. And I reckon it doesn't, I, I know it was the case for me um, and probably many other people. I know my niece, um, she did nursing. She went through the university system. And when we talk about it, um, 
we both say we learned more in that first year of working as a registered nurse than we did in the, the entire time that you're in your program. Yeah. And it's true, like your, your learning never stops. And it's the same case today. I mean, you know, I've been I've been working in and around intensive care, either clinically or in educational research for a very long time now. But every time I step in the unit, I learn something new. Mm, mm. You what know? well, changes so often too that you have to doesn't it? it yeah it does it does yeah so how did you fall into the ICU side of nursing so I was lucky in my in my hospital-based program they had electives and critical care was one of the electives and I chose to do that and I was I did that elective in the surgical ICU that was also part of recovery so it was mm -hmm. it was kind of a, we had, I think, about a 30, um, 30 bay recovery area and then a six bed um, surgical ICU with an additional two burns rooms because we were a burns unit as well. Um, so I did that. I did my elective there and I just fell in love with it. Like it, it just the people were sick. They needed your help, but there was a lot of turnover. You know, so you got to see a lot of different things. And certainly the patients who came into that surgical ICU straight from theatre were always just, there was so much work done to get them stabilised and everything, you know, looking nice and neat and they're settled and they're pain-free. And it just gave you such a sense of accomplishment <laughs> after a few hours of really hard work that, yeah. you know, you went, oh, this is good. This is where they should be. This is, you know, so I really enjoyed that. Um, you know, I enjoyed that, that type of work. So I wanted to come back um, as a, like as a new graduate and work in that area. And the, the head nurse, as we call them in Canada, um, said to me, no, she says, you go and work on a ward and get street smart. It's best advice anybody ever gave me. Mm. Because the ability to hone your assessment skills and, um, learn and make decisions in an environment where you're less supported than what you are in an ICU is really quite valuable. So I do, I, I think about her often in that advice. And at the time I was annoyed, but when I, when I think back on it now, it's the best advice anybody's ever given me. Mm, it's so important, isn't it? Like, so those basic assessment skills, time management skills, yeah. communication skills, you know, yeah. particularly talking to um, awake patients. <laughs> Yeah, managing the deteriorating patient. Yeah. You know, because we didn't have, in that hospital, we didn't have an HDU. So, and, and the only patients who were in ICU were intubated and ventilated. So as soon as you got extubated, you were out to the wards. So, yeah. so on the wards, you had pretty sick patients. Yeah. yeah. You know, they're, they're patients who we would see in our ICUs now as a HDU type patient. It's so, an interesting point, isn't it, that, you know, sort of the demographics of the ICU population um, or the ward population have changed significantly because of um, the fact that these sick patients come to an HDU or ICU rather than stay in the ward. Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. Mm. And it, it's different all around the world too, you know, depending on how they, how they manage it. I know there's some, you look at some studies from the US and they talk about their ICU patients, but they've had like a total mm. replacement and yeah. PCA. <laughs> they're not really critically ill they're, they're getting yeah. into the care <laughs> i'm not sure where they put those ones <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah but you see you did manage to clock yourself as a true icu nurse because you said that you like to have the patients neat and straight <laughs> <laughs> that's right 
everything in order. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like the um, pictures of the ICU nurse versus the ED nurses. Yeah. All our lines are straight and labelled and, you know, the ED nurses are just chaotic. So, yeah. <laughs> so when did you move from Canada to Australia? So I came to Australia in, well, first I came for a holiday in 1990. So I've got um, cousins who live in Sydney and uh, I'm kind of sandwiched between the two of them. So my um, female cousin, Nikki, is a year older than me and then there's me and then there's Brandon. Um, and so, so Nikki had come back to, they, they'd moved to Australia when she was about six. And so she'd come back and lived in Canada with us for a couple of years um, and said to me, well, it's your turn to come to Australia. So I came for a holiday, had a great holiday. We traveled around together and, um, she said to me, well, why don't you come back and live for a year? And I went, yeah, okay. <laughs> so I went, I went home, um, would have been about, I think it was about November, 1990. And I started looking into what I needed to do to move to Australia and, started going through all the paperwork which was quite onerous at the time it mm -hmm. wasn't just a here's everything we need and you gave it to them they made a decision it was like give me this bit and then we'll come back to you and we'll ask for the next bit and the next bit <laughs> so it was a bit little bit tedious um mm. but i got it got it done and then i came to australia in january of 1992 at a time when there wasn't very many nursing jobs around and I had, I had just secured a day's evenings position in the surgical ICU, the much sought after no more night duty. Exactly. <laughs> I had it for a grand total of five weeks and then I resigned and, and came down here to no job, um, living at, living with my aunt and uncle, um, and I, I was a bit worried because when I was looking, I just went, oh, there's just, there's nothing. There's hardly yeah. anything. And I started thinking, well, there's a couple of jobs in community nursing. And I thought, oh, I guess I could figure that out. Uh, and then and then a job came up actually at the hospital. It was only about a 20-minute walk from my aunt and uncle's place, so Manly Hospital in Sydney. Mm -hmm. So I went up there and, and worked up there. Uh, and that was really quite a, a fortunate accident i think for me because it's probably the thing that kick-started my research career i think uh-huh in what way well the director of the icu keith burgess was very um he's very strongly committed to research and he was involved in a few studies and uh he used to you know obviously encourage people to also be involved um and he said to me one day uh, this is back when the, the intensive care annual scientific meeting was going to be in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And he decided to organize like a satellite conference on the wet lung because ARDS was all the rage at the time. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, well, given, you know, we're at Manly, we're right next to the beach, we get a lot of near drownings. Do you want to do some research on near drowning and present it at this satellite conference? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. Why not? But, you know, that's what, you know, my, my first experience of putting together like a case report form, which I didn't even know that's what it was called at the time, and, and collecting the data and figuring out how to get it and how to analyze it and all, all that, that sort of stuff. My very first, you know, presentation 
or had everything nicely written on the, you know, the little index little cards. And then yeah. I put them on the lectern, which didn't have a lip at the bottom. And so they all just fell on the floor. Mm. <laughs> Did you have them numbered? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I just had to wing it. I had to wing it. And, and that's, that's when, for me, I realized I quite like doing this. And, and I can, when I'm under pressure, wing it. If, if oh, I'm ready. Listen which yeah. was a good and a bad lesson at the time because sometimes I tend to rely on that a little bit when maybe I shouldn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but that was kind of the catalyst for this ongoing passion, I guess, in terms of yeah. clinical research and the ICO. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. I mean, well, while I was working in that unit, I went and did my degree at the University of Sydney because, of course, I, I had a hospital diploma. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I went and did, did my degree and, you know, there wasn't much research mm. in that. Um, but after the experience that I, I had, um, I decided that I'd go and do my master's by research. And so that's really probably where I had the greatest interest. Um, mm. When I think back on it, 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 it probably was the biggest learning curve I've ever had in my life was that. It was, it was really challenging because I was working in an environment, I was working then at the College of Nursing in New South Wales, mm -hmm. um, which ran like a hospital. So it was kind of clock in, clock out. You got to do this number of hours. There was no, you know, if I said, can I, you know, can I leave a couple hours early and go collect data? It's like, no way, you can't do that. Like it mm -hmm. just, it just wasn't a done thing. So it was a pretty hard, it's a pretty hard slog. Um, because I worked, you know, I worked about a 45 minute drive from home. And then it was probably about another 45, 50 minutes to get to the hospital. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the, the amount of data that I collected um, on the patients, uh, when I added it all up, it was about four months of full time work that I wow. did on top of my job within a 12 month period. And so, so I wondered, I wondered why I was so tired yeah. <laughs> at the end of it. So it was, it wasn't a, um, it was a, it was a good experience because I learned a lot from doing mm. it, but it was very hard. Um, and I realized that I then, I was doing a research project and a research higher degree in a context of not actually being very well supported. I was supported by mm. my supervisor but I wasn't supported that well by my employer. I was a little bit supported by the clinical area. Um, so the director would help with, with screening and he'd flag patients to me and, and just being generally supportive of the fact that I was doing it was mm. huge because mm. it meant then it was accepted by the staff, but there wasn't, you know, you couldn't say, could you collect this data for me or anything like that? That wasn't a, yeah. That wasn't so you're spending all hours doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what were you investigating? So I was looking at um, the impact of enteral feeding on gastric mucosal blood flow. So, so measuring it using a gastric tonometer, which nobody sees anymore, but, but in the 90s, it was a device that was developed um, like a nasogastric tube with a silicone balloon um, near the tip. And that silicone balloon was permeable to carbon dioxide. So the theory is that if, if you have reduced gut blood flow, then there's more opportunity for the CO2 in the blood to diffuse into the gut lumen and therefore into the balloon. 
So there's a lot of um, data showing that patients with higher gut mucosal CO2 levels actually did more poorly than others because it, it was a signal that they weren't adequately resuscitated. Mm-hmm. So it, um, so yes, it did make an impact. So the question was, it, you know, if you're using this device, can you feed somebody at the same time? Right. Yeah. Do you have to have the gut empty? And and the presence of the food does make a difference. Now, why that makes a difference? Is it because the food actually improves gut mucosal blood flow, or is it because the presence of the feeding solution prevents the CO2 from mm-hmm. diffusing into the balloon? We don't really know the, the mechanisms of it, but but we do know that um, it, it did affect the readings. So, mm-hmm. so as I progressed through that, gastrotonometry really started coming out of favor. Um, it wasn't, wasn't very well ad- adopted. There was other strategies like um, subcutaneous measurement of, mm-hmm. of CO2, those sorts of things that people were looking at, sublingual. Um, but the thing that it really made me realize is that we don't really know how to feed patients (laughs) because part of what I was trying to do is to set up a enteral feeding protocol to be used in the study Mm -hmm. and to do that based on evidence. And there wasn't a lot of evidence to base that protocol on. So that's really what then fed into my PhD work, which was around what decisions, you know, what information do nurses use to make decisions about enteral feeding practice? And the management of that, recognizing that there's a lot of variability in the findings that are there, and that's still the case today. So that was, mm. you know, that was over 12 years ago that I finished that. That hasn't changed all that much. There's still a lot of uncertainty about what's the best thing to do. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. And we're so, involved in some studies that are still investigating that, aren't we? Yeah, Ongoing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> It is, it is. And I guess that's the question, isn't it? Do you think we will ever um, unravel this mystery um, in terms of the best way to feed our patients? You know, I I don't know, because there's so many factors that are involved. And for such a long time, we keep using the endpoint of mortality Mm. when, when we look at these studies. And if you were randomizing somebody to optimal nutrition and the other patients to nothing, then you're probably going to show a difference, but we don't do that. So, because it's not ethical to do that. Um, so when we, it's not how we practice either really, is it? And and that's, that's one of the problems with some of the studies is that we're, we're comparing sometimes apples and apples Mm. because sometimes the, even in your intervention group, you're still not reaching target. Yeah. You know, so there's, so there's a lot of methodological challenges, but I think fundamentally the big one is we've got to figure out what's the best outcome measure in nutrition. And that really, that still eludes us. I, there's no agreement on it. There's nothing that's a, a direct measurement of nutritional status. Um, so the, where I focus on is, is trying to look at strategies to make sure that we deliver what's prescribed. Mm. Well, my question was going to be, instead of mortality, um, and obviously we don't know what the best outcome might be to choose, but what other sorts of outcomes might we look at, and particularly, I guess, around patient-centred outcomes? Yeah, well, one of the things that we're working on at the moment is, um, and this is sort of, you know, down a long-term trajectory, is thinking about the functional recovery of people after Mm. ICU, because 
even, even in patients who aren't critically ill, um, nutrition-related outcomes are a much longer-term measure. They're not really something that you'd expect to see a difference in either in ICU or in hospital. Mm. It's more much further down the track. Um, and there is some data to show that if you feed people well, they're, they're less likely to be readmitted. They're more likely to go home than to rehab or to an aged care facility, that, that sort of thing. So, so that ability to get back to your normal activities of daily living and that functional recovery is actually quite important. But I don't think we can look at nutrition alone. I think we have to look at both nutrition and exercise together because that, that concept is around preserving that lean body mass, but also the function. Mm-hmm. And so that's some of the work that we're looking at at the moment um, is, is how can we have an, how can we optimize both the nutrition prescription and the activity or exercise mm-hmm. prescription for patients who are critically ill in ICU and throughout their hospital stay? How can we, how can we get that to the targets that we've set? Mm-hmm. Not asking the question of whether the target's the right target, because that, mm-hmm. that question can be answered by somebody else. But if you, as a, di- as a dietitian sets me a, a target, for nutrition and a physio sets a target for the activity, how do I, as a nurse, help make sure those targets happen? And if we do that, can we make an impact on functional recovery after Mm -hmm. ICU? So one of the things that we're focusing on is how can we actually engage the families in this? Mm -hmm. So can families, um, most patients can't really actively participate in ICU. And even once they go to the ward, it might be a bit limited because there could still be some cognitive impairment or things like that, that impact their ability to to participate fully. Um, But engaging families in this sort of of work to say, here's what the goals are and and what strategies can we use to achieve those? So we're looking at the moment at patient level audit and feedback where, where, where the goals are made very visible to the family and also to the staff and that we report back each day where we're at in terms of reaching those goals. So that's a study that we're just developing at the moment. Hopefully we'll start recruiting um, mm. early next year as, as a pilot, because it's a, we've got a lot of pilot data around family engagement in nutrition, mm-hmm. and it's very well received by, by most family members. Um, clinicians are, you know, initially were reluctant to <laughs> engage families in this way but once they started doing it they realized well it doesn't it's not really too different to what we're doing anyway which is which is good Um, so we have a lot of that learning around nutrition but I think the mobility and exercise question is going to be a little bit different because it's I think it's easier to have a, a conversation with a nurse to say are they at goal rate for their enteral feeding rather than how come you haven't got my mum up you're supposed to get up in the chair twice today it's just a harder it's a harder point to actually move. Yep. And had a conversation, like you say, perhaps with a family member to, to address. Yeah. So in terms of family engagement, what do we mean? And what sort of, I guess, um, levels of family engagement might we look at? Well, there's lots of different definitions of what family engagement is. Um, but really where, where I sort of land is it's whatever they want it to be. So if they, if they want it to be down the trajectory of being very passive where pre- predominantly what they're doing is receiving information, then that's fine. 
That's what they want. That's what they're ready for at this point. But as healthcare professionals, I think we need to keep going back and assessing that because that will change with time. So mm. early in the ICU admission, the cognitive load for family members is so high. Um, they're just struggling to try and make sense of what's going on and to understand it. So an ability to actively participate at that stage is, is tough. And, and maybe not something, for the odd person it might be okay, but for most people, our qualitative data is saying that it's, it's too early. But as the patient starts to recover, they, they want to become a little bit more actively engaged. And so I think it's our job to continue to evaluate that and to support them in how they can achieve that. So we're even talking about, um, you know, how can a family member help mobilize somebody in the ICU? Now, we might not feel confident in, in them being there to support somebody as they walk, but perhaps they push the pump or they hold the oxygen canister, what, you know, something like that. Or even if they're just in being encouraging, walking alongside mm. and saying, you're doing a really good job and, you know, those sorts of things. I know we, we had a patient in ICU a few months ago and he was in for such a long time that um, a lot of muscle wasting in his neck and he, he just hardly could hold his neck up. So I used to get the family to sit in front of him and say, you know, look, look them in the eye because then he'd have to hold his head up. You know, so that was kind of his, you know, yeah. rather than saying, hold your head up, if you put somebody right in front of it, just look, look at me, you can do it, keep going. Yeah. You know, it's, there's lots of different ways that we can engage them. And, and what's really important is that we, we have to think about, obviously, you know, looking after the patient, but looking after the family members is equally important. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, you know, we know about the post-intensive care syndrome family, the anxiety, the depression, the PTSD, and whether some of these engagement strategies might assist with that longer term, we, we don't really know that yet. Mm -hmm. um, but having that support and that feeling of connectedness might help at least those people who want to engage in that way. Mm. Do you think part of the um, issue um, in engaging families is that we often see them as maybe a little bit more of a burden than a help at the bedside? And, and how do we get around that? You know, I don't think, I don't think we do enough in or pre-registration education about how to engage with families in a meaningful way. So I actually think for a lot of people, it's a fear of the unknown mm. or some bad experiences. And there are some families who are incredibly challenging and that these sorts of strategies are, are not gonna be appropriate at particular times for some groups. You might have to be dealing with completely different issues. But for a lot of families, um, you know, they can engage in a meaningful way. And when we, when we first tested our um, family-centered nutrition intervention, there was two, two um, examples that just made me go, oh, this is what it's all about. And one was a mother who came in. They're actually both mothers. Um, so the first one, a mother came in and they had been talking about extubating her son. He had had a head injury. They're talking about extubating him and she came back she went and had lunch she came back it was about two or three o'clock in the afternoon he was still on the ventilator and so she went to the nurse and she said are they going to extubate 
And the nurse said, oh, I don't think so. And she said, well, I want to speak to the doctor then. So, so the nurse was there, the doctor was there, and she says, if you're not going to extubate my son, can you please turn the feeds back on and make sure you, you give what he's already missed? Brilliant. And I was like, yes. <laughs> it worked. And they did. Yeah. You know, and that probably should have happened earlier when, you know, when we went, okay, we're, this probably isn't going to happen. But sometimes you're going, maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe not, you know. Mm-hmm. Decided. Um, so that was one. And then I had another mother whose, her, her daughter had malabsorption syndrome. And she was, she back and forth to ICU several admissions. And on, on a particular admission, as I think it was her last admission in ICU, um, before she eventually went to the ward and was discharged. And the mother said, you know, she's just got to eat all the time. Like she just, in order to, to maintain weight, she's eating nonstop because she has to get that many calories in and it's ruining her quality of life. Mm-hmm. She can't go to the movies. You know, she goes to a friend, she's got to take her food with her. And it just, she said, can't we just put a peg tube in and feed her overnight? And then she can just eat like a normal person during the day. During the day, yeah. And and I went, oh, would you like to talk to the dietitian about that? And she said, yes, please. So, so the dietitian came up, I think, the next day. And two days later, she had a peg tube to put in. Amazing. And I, and I just went, that's really good. And when I talked to that mother afterwards, she said, I know a lot about nutrition because of her health problem. I have to. Yeah. But what what your intervention helped me to do was to make me feel empowered that I could have this conversation. And it wasn't just about nutrition. It made me feel like I could have this conversation about anything. So, so I think that's a two way thing. I think as staff, we're not quite ready and we don't quite know how to help families do this, Mm -hmm. but I also think the families don't know quite how to navigate. And there's a lot of fear that they're going to upset people and there's going to be consequences. And so it's, we need to tackle this as a, as a really sticky problem. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because often if, um, you know, if it's not an acute um, incident that has brought the patient into the hospital, often the family or whānau are the ones who know them the best and they know what yeah. works, what doesn't work, what their triggers are, what their sleeping patterns are, yeah. all those sorts of things that we as clinicians are never going to know. That's right. Um, but as you've pointed out, the family's so disempowered for multiple reasons, either because of grief or because of the system or, you know, they just don't know what to say and how to say it. Um, You know, we never get that information. And, you know, the poor family are probably sitting there gagging (laughs) to say something, but not knowing how. Yeah. 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 And it's that ability to be flexible and to, to be able to evaluate and recognize who wants to do what. You know, because not everybody mm. wants to be actively engaged like that. There's just just tell me what's going on. That's all I want. I don't want any more. I'm too scared. I don't feel equipped. I, you know, and so we you have to recognise that. But I think um, we probably don't do that on an ongoing basis to to come back mm. and and touch base with them and see if they change their mind about how they might want to engage. Mm, mm. And then I guess it's how you. Um, ask those questions and then how you document them and follow up. Yeah. Any strategies or expert tips around that? Well, I think, I think one of the things, and and a lot of units do this anyway, is, is helping build that relationship between the nurse and the, and the family. 
and the patient and that's thinking about your rostering patterns you know mm -hmm. so if you're constantly changing who who's in there then you got to go back through that relationship building thing so it's mm -hmm. it becomes much easier because you have to get to know someone I think to work to be able to work with them effectively so mm -hmm. there's lots of different strategies but I think that's an easy one that we can try and implement and that's it's, it's easy but it's difficult isn't it because often these are the longer term patients um, who are seen as more challenging yeah. and often their families are seen as challenging the yeah. longer they're there and so staff are possibly requesting to you know have a different patient each day yeah yeah but you know sometimes i've certainly seen in instances where um, families have been challenging and the cause of that is because we're shutting them out mm. and that once you actually make them feel part of the team and that they have a voice that that behavior starts to change mm. Mm. i've certainly been um as a family member a difficult family member <laughs> Um, I, and I purposely was a difficult family member because I wanted what I wanted. <laughs> um, you know, it was an end of life care situation and um, I've become more Australian than Canadian. Canadians are very polite and don't like to rock the boat, but I was determined that my dad was going to, to leave the world that he loved in the way that he wanted to. Yeah. And I wasn't going to let the nurse looking after him stop that from happening, which her practice was not consistent with what he wanted. So mm. it did have to be a little bit forceful and I'd probably go down and, you know, it's probably a dinner time story for her maybe, but I, I, don't, I don't care <laughs> because that was my job was to get, you know, things the way that I knew he wanted them to be. Mm. Mm. And I guess one of the um, simplest things that we can all do, which you and I have just been guilty of doing, is stop referring to them as difficult families, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because they're not, they're advocating. Um, yes. Like, like you're just describing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes there is, there's a lot of family tension that's, that's not, um, you know, exacerbated by the illness that the family member has. Mm but it's not really about the relationship that we have with the families about their own internal relationship. And mm -hmm. that can be really challenging to deal with as well, because it's just another added layer of complexity for how yeah. you manage that. And it, and it is, you know, I'm probably guilty of saying we need to be doing this. And when I went back in to do some shifts in ICU at the beginning of the COVID um, outbreak and that here, I remember leaving one day and going, man, it is, it is hard to look after a really sick patient and look after that family at the same time. Mm. It is tough. Yeah. And like you say, you have no idea what's going on, the internal politics, um, yeah. it's the family themselves. And often you're only speaking with one or two people when there's 20 <laughs> giving them advice. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. no, difficult. And I guess the other thing too is what do we know about what the patient wants in terms of family engagement? And I don't know if you've yeah. looked into that at all. Um, yeah, there's, there's to me, some, that's always challenging. Yeah, there's some research that's been done on that. Um, and interestingly, when they, and so this is around more physical care type things, mm. like washing face, brushing hair, that kind of stuff. And I see you when you, so they looked at um, physicians, nurses, family members and patients 
And the thing that I found interesting is that the nurses um, rated the participation much lower than anybody else. So, so they were they were essentially saying it wasn't that, you know, important or a priority to do. Mm. The patients and the physicians rated it higher, and so did the um, family members. So that's that's, nice. that's a that's a single site. So you know you don't you don't really you don't really know to what extent that happens in many places. But I think mm. sometimes, um, particularly being ICU nurses are really territorial, right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, and 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 that's one of the challenges that we have. It's like, mm. do not touch my patient. Mm -hmm. I'm doing that. Like we are control freaks when it comes to that. Yeah. And that's one of the things I think we need to recognize is that it's actually okay for people to do that. And one of the um, research dietitians was asking me the other day, she said, what's, what's one of the ways in which you really let families do stuff that's, that's maybe out of the ordinary. And I said, Oh, I let them extubate somebody once. <laughs> and she went, what? And I went, yeah. I said, it was an end of life. You know, it was an end of life situation. Under normal circumstances, I probably wouldn't do that but this was this was not so much about caring for the patient anymore who who was was going to to die because we're taking them off the ventilator it was actually about caring for the wife mm. and she wanted to do it so I helped her to do it and she was very grateful for that because mm. she um you know he was still a little bit lucid after she did it and they could have a little bit of a a smile and a chat and, and he died a, about a day and a half later mm. um, but that was really important to her that's an amazing but, story but this was in this was in the 90s and and nobody knows i did that until now <laughs> until now <laughs> I tell it on a podcast but, but but it was at a time when it wasn't the thing to do to engage families yeah. i used to sneak dogs into the icu too because that was also a thing you couldn't let pets come in i know but there's still rules around that, right? And I know, I know. So if I was a patient, and in fact, my dogs are just about to appear home from a walk, so there might be a bit of noise. But if I was a patient, and particularly if I was at the end of my time, yeah. I would put my dogs there, you know? Yeah, yeah. And we had one um, at one point a little while ago who was allowed in and had to, you know, be escorted in in a cage by the security guard. And you think, really? Yeah, uh, yeah. What's that going to do? <laughs> no, we snuck it. This is just a little bit, so it wasn't very big. We snuck them in in a shopping bag. <laughs> and the, the amazing thing is, is he just crawled straight up, you know, under the arm of the, under the arm of the patient and the patient's blood pressure and heart rate, everything just went straight down and the dog just slept. Yeah, because I think they understand, don't they? You know, yeah, they're yeah. very um, instinctive animals. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, no, there's um, it's sort of always is that thing, you know, where the, the relative offers to help wash the patient or, you know, to do something. And your first thought is like, oh, so if that was me in the bed and my relative, you know, came in, my mother, my husband, my child, would I want them washing me or... You know, how do I know that that's what the patient wants? Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so moving on from that, um, one of your other roles is as the Editor-in-Chief of Australian Critical Care, which yeah. is the Journal of the Australian College of Critical Care Nurses. 
and this sounds like a massive task. Uh, it's <laughs> sure. getting bigger every day. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about the journal and how you came on to ta- came to take on this role. Yeah. So the journal's been. We're now in our thirty, coming up to our thirty fourth. Let me just check if I've got the numbers right. Yeah. So the, so in twenty twenty one we'll be in our our thirty fourth um, issue or volume, I should say. Um, of the journal. So it's been going for quite a long time. Um, and it, its origins are actually out of a garage in a home in Sydney way, way back when. Really? Um, Sally Robertson, a number of others were instrumental in getting it started. And when we look back at those very first issues, they were really predominantly more around communication. And now when we look at the journal now, we, we rarely publish anything that's not research. Um, so it's just, it's, so it's evolved over time, um, but it's evolved because nursing is involved and nursing research has evolved. Um, we still do publish the odd thing that is more like a narrative review or an opinion piece, or, um, recently we've published, um, like pandemic staffing guidelines, which obviously aren't evidence-based because there's not a lot of evidence for it. They're more opinion pieces, but we did try and use a rigorous approach in developing those recommendations. So, so there's a little bit of a mix in there, but um, you know, it's, we have a fantastic reputation internationally. So we're the top ranked critical care nursing journal in the world. And we're, we're ranked, um, oh, I'm trying to remember, I think it might be 16 out of 224 nursing and midwifery journals. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a really good achievement. Uh, in the year prior, we're actually ranked fifth overall in the world. Um, we had this massive jump in our impact factor, which is a measure of, of really the citations and the, the use of the journal. Um, but as you grow, uh, that changes because just the calcula- how you calculate your impact factor is a function of how many papers you're publishing. So we had an 80% increase in the number of, of submissions that we've had and papers that we're publishing. So we used to be four issues a year. And I can remember when I first came onto the journal um, back in the early 2000s, uh, there used to be quite a regular ring around to go, has anybody got a paper they can put in? We don't have enough. Um, and we used to go around you know, begging people, can you please write something that we can put in? And they were tough times. We put a lot of um, effort into trying to increase submissions and copy flow. We had initiatives like the statistics series, which is still quite old, but still gets regular quotes and, and citations because we did it in a way to show people how to apply it in clinical practice. So it helps particularly people who are new to research try and understand um, you know, things like descriptive statistics. And that might be an area where, that we expand on in the future because we only really did the basics we didn't do anything more advanced Mm. Um, so that was one of our strategies to try and increase uh, copy flow coming through we're we're now in a position now where we're rejecting around 70 percent of what gets submitted so it's it's a nice position to be in because we're able to put forward much higher quality papers Mm. but it also means sometimes that some of the manuscripts that were historically submitted where we really supported authors along the way to enhance their work to get it to a publishable quality we just don't have capacity to do that anymore 
And that sort of work really needs to shift to mentors who sit within their clinical or academic communities rather than us as, mm. as journal editors. Mm. Um, so yeah, it is a, it's, a, it's a different job. It's still in critical care, but the publishing world is a whole nother world. And trying to understand um, the changes and the nuances there to continue to improve the product, mm -hmm. which is the journal, um, is important because it, it is it is and always has been the, the journal of the college. And so first and foremost, it has to be something that's of use to members. Mm. But at the same time, we need to be thinking of and following what we should be doing with information that's using the highest quality information to make decisions about our clinical care and our practice so that's why we've shifted to be much more of a research type publication rather than here's my experience of what i did mm -hmm. Th those papers sometimes are still useful um, but more and more we're, we're recognizing that there's a huge amount of bias in some of those and we don't necessarily want people to pick it up and transplanted into yeah. their clinical area, particularly if it's promoting something that's not tested and we don't know whether it works or not. Yeah. So I guess when the papers are submitted, there's a lot goes on in the whole process about, you know, does it go any further? Um, what will yeah. it add? Who, who would read it? Um, yeah. What does it mean? But yeah. across the whole spectrum, um, do you mainly get ICU-based um, manuscripts submitted or are there you know people from other specialty areas submitting manuscripts? Yeah, they're, they're mainly what well, I'd say critical care so that's the that's in our aims and scope we talk about critical care practice not ICU practice so we do get papers that are more around um, cardiology for example sometimes um, post-anesthetic recovery we get emergency papers we get trauma um, we get neuroscience specific although not that common to get that. Usually if we get those, they are in the context of a, a critically ill patient with a head injury. Um, so we do have a range and it is, sometimes we have arguments about does this fit or doesn't it fit? Um, so for example, all of the work that's around clinical deterioration, now that's actually most of the time happening in the ward. We don't normally talk about clinical deterioration in ICU. We talk about it happening in the ward and then what happens to the patient. Now, in many clinical areas, ICU is involved in that service, so there's some relevance there, but it is probably literature that's more relevant to people working on a ward. Um, so we do publish that work, but sometimes I look at that and I go, is this, is this really the readership? Mm. I'm not sure that that matters quite so much as what it used to. So when we, when we had the old subscription print model, where the print copy of the journal was going out to people. And that's how people accessed um, information. They would go and they get the big volumes off the library shelf. And, you know, you're looking in your microfiches and things like that. Yeah. It was probably more important then. I think it's less important now that we can do a Google Scholar search. We can look in Medline or CINAHL mm -hmm. or Embase. And we find things, it doesn't matter where it's published. And in fact, we're probably less concerned initially with where it's published than we are what it's about. Mm. Um, so we have to think about that as well, but we still want it to fit and be of relevance to our readers. So that's the primary first litmus test that we look at. Yeah. And looking at all sorts of different methodologies as well. So, you know, I guess the yeah. belief is 
that if I've done perhaps a qualitative study, why would I look at an ICU journal um, to publish it? I need to find a qualitative journal. So we publish um, a lot of qualitative research. Yeah. 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 And I think it's really important to recognise that, you know, how much that enhances our knowledge as um, yeah. a critical care nurses, right? Yeah. And, and pretty much as long as it's relevant to, to critical care, um, that's, that's our primary interest, not so much the methodology. Um, but one of the things that we do look at, so if it's an animal study, we don't take animal studies. Mm -hmm. um, if it's a lab-based study, then we do look at it quite carefully to go, does this have clinical implications? So we've, we've published some simulation-based studies, but also some lab-based studies recently. Right. And but they did have good messages for clinical practice and good implications for clinical practice. So that's, that's what swayed our decision. But probably, oh, I don't know, maybe four years ago, maybe a bit more, we, we changed our guide for authors and our language because we always used to say that papers had to be relevant to critical care nursing practice. Mm -hmm. And we got rid of that and we just said it had to be relevant to critical care clinical practice because we recognize we don't work in a silo. Yeah. So why should we publish in a silo? You know, there's going to be nursing literature that's relevant to allied health and to medicine and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So we changed that and we started promoting the journal outside nursing. And probably more recently, um, we've had, uh, so um, Carol Hodgson has come on. Um, as an editorial board member, and Emma Ridley, who's a ICU research dietitian, is on a, an editor on the journal, mm -hmm. because we could see huge synergies between our practice and that of Allied Health. Yeah. So we got had a huge growth in the number of submissions of papers coming from Allied Health clinicians and very high quality papers. Mm -hmm. and, and Emma recently, our our uh, special issue for this year was around Allied Health. Mm -hmm. And when I read all of the papers, I went, these aren't really allied health. These are papers for critical care. They're just led yeah. by allied health clinicians. Yeah. They are, you know, it's around yeah. speech and things, but it's of high relevance to all of us. But it shows how we practice too. We practice as a team, don't we? Yeah, um, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And we do that on the editorial board and the editorial committee as well. So mm -hmm. there are some papers that come in that have um, all medical authors and, and sometimes I look at them and I just think this just isn't the right audience. Um, mm -hmm. This is interesting. It's relevant to critical care, but will nurses find this useful? Mm -hmm. and, and if I think that nurses aren't going to find this useful, either, either in their practice or in their research, then I tend to suggest they publish it elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So who should publish? No. Um, because I guess there's this sort of view too that, um, you know, either the publish or perish and that it's very academic, but can anyone just, you know, write a paper, submit it? Um, yeah, so the advice that I, I give to people is um, know what gap you're filling mm -hmm. because it's getting so competitive to publish now that you can't, you can't just write something that interests you and make that appealing to others. And this is one of the challenges that we have, particularly with papers coming from other countries that are, are um, a little bit uh, further behind in their evolution of ICU practice than perhaps what we are. So we, we had a paper um, from another country where they were talking about allowing families to visit two hours a day. 
that is probably really relevant to them. Yeah. But for our broader readership, um, that's not even really an issue in most ICUs of the readers that we have. So, you know, we do take those things into consideration about, you know, is this going to have impact for our readership? The, mm -hmm. the other thing too, and I, I tend not to rely on it too much, but I do think about the impact factor because we want to be able to drive, we want to be able to drive that up so that we attract um, high quality submissions and, and strong authorship teams. We do, and that, that is something that attracts them. But I'm not going to reject a paper because I don't think it's going to be widely cited. If, if it's a paper that I look at and I think this is actually really useful to clinicians, mm -hmm. um, then we're going to go with it. And we actually had a, a paper that was more of a narrative review submitted a number of years ago now, but at the time when systematic reviews were all the rage and everything had to be done in this really constrained and methodological way that was transparent and able to be replicated and all that stuff. We had a really nice narrative review done by um, a neurosurgeon around DECRA. Oh, okay. um, and it was, it was an opinion piece, oh. but I read it. So the reviewers actually said, no, we shouldn't progress with this because it hasn't followed Prisma and this and that. And I read it and I went, I haven't worked in neuro ICUs for a very long time. And that was really helpful for me. I feel like I understand what the issues are not only mm. in relation to the science, but in relation to the concepts of what this mm. is and what it's trying to achieve. So as an editorial team, we discussed it and we published it mm. because we thought it was going to have very high relevance to clinicians. Mm. Mm. And be quite impactful and helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you get much feedback from readers in terms of what is published and not, not necessarily the quality, but the content of the journal? Um, you know, not really. Yeah. Um, we, we've, we've been getting more letters to the editor, which is great to see. So it suggests that people are looking at that. Mm. Um, I think the feedback that we get or how I take the feedback is we look at the number of downloads. So we look at downloads where they're coming from around the world. And if we can start to see them increasing in certain areas, then that's great. We look at to see who's submitting, where they're from. Um, you know, if you look ten a decade ago, probably the predominantly the authors would have been all Australian, and that's not the case now. They're from all over the place. It's probably still the majority are Australian, but there's there's now a much greater diversity, and certainly across disciplines there's a much greater diversity. So we have um, a lot of projects that get done that are probably they're probably a little bit more quality projects, but very high relevance. Um, to practice that are done as registrar projects. And if they're done really well, you just go, that's, that's nice. I like that. That's a good focused clinical question. Yeah. But even if it makes somebody think about their own practice in their clinical area and improve it, that's going to have a good impact. Mm. So, so those are the sorts of things that, that we look at. And one of the things that's really pleased me probably in the last 12 to 18 months is the number of, um, number of researchers who are in very strong research groups like the ANZIC CTG, for example, getting a lot of submissions from that group. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And not their penultimate paper, because you wouldn't ever put their penultimate mm. paper in our journal. That's not what our journal's about. But they are publishing their foundation work that's going to lead to that work. Yeah, yeah, which is really it's, important. Yeah, it's really important to get it out there. And it's, it's also a value add for us, because there's people like Ronaldo Bolomo, for example. That's clickbait. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, so I'll look at it and I go, yeah. People are going to see it and they're going to cite it just because your name's on them. Yeah. Like that's yeah. just the reality. There's, there's people out there who have reputations and influence that automatically make others think that the work is very high quality. Now, mm -hmm. it doesn't change our, our review or our assessment process. That all still stands and we're not going to accept a paper just because somebody's name's on it. That's not going to happen because um, our reviewers don't know who's written it in the first no, place. No. Yeah, that's blinded. Um, but you do look at it and, and, I, and I think, yeah, this is actually really important. Dale Needham's group, for example, they're mm. starting to publish with us as well. And that's great because that foundation work gets cited a lot. I think it's huge kudos for the journal and, you know, for the belief in the quality of the journal, the review process, um, you know, the whole the whole editorial process that these, you know, big names, big stars in the research world are actually submitting their work through um, Australian Critical Care. Yeah. So, yeah, well done. Yeah, no, it's it's good, and we just we're just working on getting a few more of them onto the editorial board. <laughs> Catch them while you can. Yeah. So we we're talking about peer review. Now, peer review is often one of those things that just absolutely terrifies people, doesn't it? And the whole process. Um, and doing, the, it, doing it or receiving it? Well, as in receiving it to start out with, I was thinking, but we can talk about peer review and how you can get in, involved in that too. Um, so if I've submitted my manuscript yeah. and I've you know, had quite a sigh of relief because I've obviously done my study, written my manuscript, managed to navigate the whole submission process, um, and then I re relax for a few weeks while it's being reviewed, I then open my emails one morning to this long email. What do I do with the review of feedback and how do I react to it? So what I do and what I still do, so this is about 150 papers down the track, <laughs> is I skim it. I don't read it in detail. I skim it and then I close it and I leave it. Walk away for a while? Walk away and I, I go back and I look at it another day. Yeah. Um, if it's short, I might read it all and go, okay, that's not too bad. I can do that right now. But if there's a lot of criticism in there, um, for me anyway, my experience always is the first read is far more raw mm. and you react to it way out, I react to it way out of proportion. Mm. And then I look at it the next day and I go, actually, God, that's actually not that bad. <laughs> and, <laughs> And actually, that's a really good idea because that's going to make it much clearer and much stronger. Thank you for that. You yeah. know, I, so it is just, I think it is a human reaction to criticism. Mm. Well, it's your baby, isn't it? That yeah. you've taken to that point and then somebody's had the gall to actually tell you that it's not quite as perfect as you thought it was. <laughs> you know, you know, this is a funny story. So I submitted a paper once a couple of years ago and I forgot to put in anything about ethics in it. Oh. I just totally forgot. Mm -hmm. And so they said, "There's, you know, where's your statement about that? How could I, of all people, forget that?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. 
but I did, you know, and that it just, you know, those things happened. I felt pretty, you know, silly that that actually occurred. Yeah. But they, you know, things like that do happen. And, and that's the whole point of the peer review process is that you're sending it to somebody who's got clean eyes, who doesn't know the project, who can see more clearly the things that you've overlooked that you just can't see anymore because you're too close to it. Yeah. And I think that's such an important thing to say, because even though you might have, you know, eight or 10 other co-authors who have seen it, nobody sees the fact that you haven't put in your ethics statement or, yeah, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I guess getting to the point, you know, 100, 150 papers later that you don't take it quite as personally as you might have the first time around um, is quite a valuable take-home message. Yeah, I mean, I think you learn how to, I think that's your growth as a researcher, though. Mm. And it's something that, um, that those of us who, who are researching all the time and are quite used to it have to be very mindful of, particularly the people who are new to research and, mm. and with students, that we forget, we forget that we've developed the researcher mindset, which is really about tear everything apart, tell me everything that's wrong, because collectively we can make it better and if we make it better then it's going to have a greater impact so it's that's kind of how i look at it and that becomes normalized into our practice Mm. we forget Mm. for novice researchers that's not normalized and that can be really confronting yeah and especially when somebody goes well why did you do that why have you picked that as an outcome measure and why have you picked that time and they they take it very personally And it's not meant that way. So we, we have to be a bit conscious, I think, about how we deliver the message, but also about helping those researchers to understand this is, if you want to be a researcher, this is how we practice. Mm. We critique each other. Yeah. We, comment, we comment all the time on each other's work. I'm doing some work with Darren Highland in, in Canada, and um, he's developed a My ICU Guide which is around helping families um, work with healthcare professionals in, in making a decision-making in ICU. Mm-hmm. And part of that is around preferences. And there's a, there's a grid that families answer these, these two questions and they plot them on this grid and it should, should land on a preference area that reflects what they want. And so we've been giving it to a couple of families and just finding we've really got to walk them through, mm-hmm. you know, how to answer that. So I just went, oh, I said to one of our RAs, I said, just, can you just hand it out to some of the admin staff, give them the booklet, hand it out, ask them to fill that out, thinking that they have a relative in the ICU and just get some feedback on that. Mm. And so we got that. I think we did uh, maybe eight or 10 people maybe gave us feedback. And I just faxed, uh, not faxed them, I scanned them and sent them off. <laughs> You're a fashion person. <laughs> So I sent them off to, to Darren yesterday and, and he came back straight away. Thanks so much for doing this. Mm. There's a lot, there was a lot of suggestions on how to improve that. Yeah. Provided yeah. by those, those people. And his response was, thank, thank you for helping me to make it better. Yeah. And again, Not, that, oh, you mean that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think as, um, as researchers, we're fairly blunt? <clears throat> yeah, <laughs> we are. <laughs> Yeah, and I suspect that, um, you know, often that sort of gets us into, not into trouble, but seen in a, in a different light, perhaps, because we cut straight to the point, 
and yeah. uh, sort of mince words. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is normal. And I think as long as we reassure people <clears throat> that this isn't a personal thing and that this, this is normal practice and it's, it, it is about ultimately, our goal is ultimately about how do we make things better for our patients and their families. Mm, exactly. That's what uh, all working we're all working for. We're all there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's not about the fame and fortune and the publications. And no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's what kills you. <laughs> yeah. 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 Exactly. So any top tips for getting published or avoiding fatal flaws, I guess? Find, find an experienced researcher to partner with. If, if you're not an experienced researcher, if you're an experienced researcher, you know how to get published, I'm assuming. <laughs> if you're not, if you're not experienced, find somebody who knows how to do it. Um, yeah. One of the biggest things that, that I think uh, our potential authors find um, disappointing is that we don't even send their paper out to peer review. Mm. And oftentimes we don't send it out because it's, it's not addressing an area of clinical need. It's, you know, it might be a small local survey um, uh, looking or exploring a particular issue where there's big systematic reviews that already exist on it. Mm. So it's not filling a gap. So you, you got to figure out what the contribution is going to be. And sometimes, you know, replicating work still uh, makes that contribution, even though mm. others have already done it. You know, if you if you don't have, um, you know, data from a particular regional area, you might want to be able to demonstrate for the purpose of a grant or something like that, that this is a problem here as well as mm. in England and the United States or wherever. You know, those are those are usual things to do. But I think working with an experienced researcher who can show you how to approach a research problem, because sometimes you might have a question but you don't actually need to do a study to answer it. You might just need to do a review or you might just mm. need to find the systematic review that somebody else has already done. Yeah. <laughs> and, and review that and think about how that applies to your practice. Mm. So that's, that's the big thing I think from the very beginning is you got to get that expert advice. And I remember having a conversation once where there was a, a statistician and a cardiac surgeon and myself and a couple of other people standing around. Sounds like a thrilling group to have a conversation with Andrea. Yes, yeah, it was. But it was actually very illuminating because in the conversation, the, the cardiac surgeon was talking about research and, you know, some of the work that he'd done and the statistician was asking some questions about the analysis and as you do, you know. And, and there was a little bit of disagreement in there and the statistician actually said to me, he goes, well, would you want me to do cardiac surgery on your wife? <laughs> so what, you know, I don't have expertise in that. I've worked in that area. I, you know, I'm familiar mm. with it, but you're not going to expect me to go and do the surgery. So why would we expect you to do the statistics? Stats. Yeah. It's a specialty in its own right. So, so that, so the message there is you have to recognize that research is a specialty in its own mm. right, that it isn't just mm. something that I've heard about. I've done one project, therefore I know what to do mm. um, because it is very nuanced. And if you want high quality, either a grant submission or a paper, or whatever, to get to that next level, it's got to compete with everything else that's out there. Mm. Mm. That's a very good point. So, I mean, this sounds like a massive role 
being editor-in-chief of a journal. How much time does this take up for you? Um, do you want me to be honest? <laughs> not just how much time you paid to do it. <laughs> um, I'm not paid to do it, uh, so it's an unpaid position. Um, I do get a small honorarium, which is mostly spent on um, getting some support to actually get some of the journal work done. Um, I probably at the moment uh, spend 16 to 20 hours a week on it, but it's extraordinary. 2020 is extraordinary in more ways than one and the, the growth in submissions um, so in fact, between I looked at the time period between um, 1st of March and 30th of June of this year, and we had in that time period 151 articles submitted. And last year in all of 2019, we had about 230 submitted. Phenomenal. So in a four month period, we had well over half of what we had the entire year prior. And we're on track now for over 400 submissions this year, if, if it keeps going the way that it's going. Um, so that's unusual. And, and it's a reason why we've moved from an editorial committee, which used to be three of us to four of us to five of us. So we keep, because we need to keep sharing the workload. But at the same time, it's a privilege to do a job like this because you actually get to read research before anybody else does other than that team. So particularly yeah. if it's in your area, you can go, oh, that's interesting. Oh, mm -hmm. never thought about that. That's mm -hmm. a, oh, I might, I might need to think about that in my grant, you know? <laughs> so, so you do get exposed to, to things that, yeah. and that's one of the reasons why I peer review as well in my area mm -hmm. is because you get to see it as the hot off the press version, you know? It's a good advertising um, yeah. strategy, yeah. yeah. And we but, touched on that a little bit just before in terms of how people can get involved in the process um, of peer review. So any suggestions around that? Um, so if, if people have um, research expertise, then they can, they can write to me and ask to be put on as a peer reviewer. So we're always looking for more peer reviewers all the time, but we do ask that when people um, request that, that they understand that they need to have a very high level of methodological knowledge because the um, submissions that we're getting now are much more complex than they ever have been. So they're not any more descriptions of this is what's happened in our unit where clinicians were very good at providing comment on those sorts of things because they could think about the practical aspects and the applicability and the logistics and all of those sorts of things, but we now predominantly need people who are very good at evaluating science. Mm. Important to have, you know, the complete skill set. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how do you fit all of this into a normal, you know, working week on top of everything else? Um, it's challenging. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is It is hard to do. Um, I, I can theoretically counted as part of my service at the university, but the amount of service that I do far exceeds the time allocated that I have for it. So, yeah. so mostly I do this, um, this sort of work on in the evenings or on weekends. So I usually spend most of my Saturday on the journal. Um, 
usually some of Sunday because inevitably the stuff I've done on Saturday generates more work on the Sunday. Mm. Um, and then I try and look at things um, even just uh, in, the, in the morning or when I'm feeling a bit tired, I'll do, I'll look at the copy editor's proofs that have come through. So I still, um, even though they go through the, the authors and the copy editor, I still look at that final version um, just, just to make sure that um, everything's been picked up and that we've got consistency. And, and occasionally, you know, when you start looking at it in a different format, sometimes you see things and you go, whoa, ooh, that's, yeah, we've caught that at the 11th hour. And sometimes you have to go back and, you know, sometimes it's just that an author's said things around the wrong way. You know, yeah. so that what they've said in the text doesn't match the data that's in the table. Mm. You know, just and it's just something that's been overlooked in, yeah. in an edit. Um, Simple but, things, yeah. yeah. To catch it before it goes, um, you know, when it's fully published. Mm. So do you find any time to unwind and relax? Uh, I, I do a little bit. <laughs> so I do a little bit of a hobby um, that I, my daughter plays um, baseball competitively. Yeah. Um, she's on in the in the Queensland um, women's team, and so I've really tried to. Sorry, baseball is a, a difficult sport for females because it's predominantly mm. male and it's also a minority sport in both mm. Australia and, and New Zealand, and in most countries actually. Yeah. Um, except for America, but it's a minority sport for women in America. Um, so I. I was able to see the generosity that so many people gave to her as from a sort of an 11 year old um, on up. She's 18, finishing high school this year. And she's been the recipient of a lot of goodwill of a lot of people. Mm. And um, she's helped to change people's mind about um, females being included in a sport like this. So I was really committed to trying to help make it easier for all those other girls that come behind her who want to play. Um, and so I'm quite involved with Baseball Queensland and their participation programs. So I, I don't coach. I can't do any of that. I can't mm -hmm. umpire. I can score a little bit. But um, it's my research skills that actually probably I use the most in terms of project management and uh, evaluation program evaluation mm. and that sort of things has really helped sort of change some of the things and create some of the opportunities that the young girls get to have now. Fantastic. Well, that's my that's my other my other hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, like you say, I think a lot of those skills that you pick up as a researcher um, and an ICU nurse, because like let's face yeah. it, you know, yeah. some of the best researchers are those anal ICU nurses. Yeah. Um, is so transferable into those other sorts of situations, aren't they? So, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. sure all the baseball tees and things are, you know, perfectly aligned and there's not, not a sheet out of, out of kilter. <laughs> they, all the documents come my way to edit. <laughs> <laughs> You're a victim of your own success. I, I get rid of all the incorrect possessive apostrophes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, well, look, thank you for your time today. Um, we should probably wrap this up and let you <laughs> move on to, no doubt, um, looking at some paper or other. Um, but thank you for your time today and um, all the best with your, you know, especially the, 
the research around the family engagement in the ICU is so hugely important, and I'm sure it will have given us lots to think about moving forward. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, and, and particularly in talking about that, because that's a very important um, thing for all of us, but very dear to my heart. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed that. I so enjoyed talking to Andrea. What an amazing lady. I loved hearing about how she started her ICU research career, about winging it under pressure, and about how looking after the family is equally as important as looking after the patient. I think it is up to all of us and would challenge you to break the mould, embrace the family, and help them to navigate the patient's journey and the fear associated with that and to use high-quality evidence to inform your practice. Thanks for listening. I'm so glad you could join us. If this is your first time listening, then welcome, and thanks for joining us. And if you are a returning listener, then thank you for coming back. I hope you are enjoying the experience. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I would love to hear them. What did you enjoy, and who would you like to hear from? Would you like to make a guest appearance, even? Please contact me by email. Until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.